Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Optimo Pathfinder is the next generation of financial modeling. Designed specifically for Australian financial advisors, Pathfinder allows you to develop and compare multiple financial strategies within minutes. With cutting-edge optimization and built-in legislation, it removes the burden of time-consuming modeling and report creation. Easy to use and easy to understand. It saves hours of manual work and allows you to turn around financial strategies in a fraction of the time. Take your business to the next level with Optimo Pathfinder. Hello and welcome back to this topic series on delivering advice differently. My name is Fraser Jack and in this, the final episode rounding out the series, we take on creating a client-centric advice process rather than a compliance-directed advice process where we discuss clients' memorable moments and the pub or barbecue test as well as not applying technology efficiencies to speed up a bad client experience. So if the client experience is a big focus in your business, then this episode is for you. Ben Martian, thank you for joining us again in this final episode of our five-part series. No worries, Fraser. I've been counting the minutes until I was back here again having this conversation with you. So thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you for being involved. Now, uh, we're talking about client-centric process. Obviously, we touched on this a little bit with the first episode. We we talked about how a lot of this was um, designed around the Corps Act, around um, the legislation and around the you know the businesses that are involved in the compliance side of things. Um, and now we're sort of seeing things turn around and becoming more around the client. So as financial planners being authorized by licensees, having to provide our files for file reviews, having those all checked, basically our whole process is designed, it, it tends to be designed about an outcome that is useful for our, our compliance team. Um, and that's been designed by lawyers and licensees and compliance experts to tick all the boxes in the law and in the regulations. What's missing in all of that is the client. It doesn't help the client understand their goals. It doesn't help the client understand their financial position. It doesn't help the client understand their the, the financial plan we're putting in place and the products we're recommending. Because what we're trying to do is just tick boxes. Uh, we're not considering the outcome, which is ultimately client understanding and client engagement and clients taking ownership of their own financial plan and running with it over the long term. And so I think we're missing a big opportunity to educate the client and demonstrate that education. We're missing the opportunity to empower the client to take ownership of, of their advice and, and their statement of, and their financial plan and, and implement it over time. So basically we've got it all around the wrong way as professional service providers um, because what we are doing at the moment is just ticking compliance boxes, not providing a professional service. Yeah, and a lot of um, a lot of what I hear from time to time, but um, 
the the reason for that is because a lot of people put the onus back on the regulators. Yeah, but the regulators and yeah, but ASIC and yeah, but we need these rules. Yeah, but these rules have to be followed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is you 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 spend a lot of time with the regulators with ASIC. Tell me about the fact that are they after rules to be followed or are they after clients to be protected and looked after? I like the way you use the yeah, but phrase because <laughs> we hear yeah, but a lot. Um, so I do spend a lot of time with regulators and I think what, what a lot of licensees, what a lot of lawyers have been missing is that when we shifted to FOFA uh, and we shifted to this um, framework that took the individual financial planner and empowered them to provide advice that's in the best interest of the client, the regulators got on that journey as well. And so ultimately what the regulators are expecting to see is advice that is in the best interest of the client. And the best interest of the client is advice that the client can understand and advice that the client can engage in and the advice that the client takes ownership of and advice that the client has had a role in building and and developing themselves. And that often doesn't come across in the way we maintain files because, again, what we're doing in maintaining the file, which is ultimately the only thing a regulator has to look back on, is the fact find and the file notes and the statement of advice because that's the way the compliance process has been built so that we can tick those boxes to demonstrate it. What the regulators would much prefer to see, and and I've had this conversation with them and they repeat it constantly, is they are looking at everything. So they're happy to look at videos and they're happy to look at recordings and they're happy to look at client testimonials and they're happy to look at everything that can demonstrate the client actually understood the advice that was providing, the client actually agreed with the advice that was providing, being provided, that the client agreed to go ahead with it and consented to it because that helps them be able to see and understand that advice has been provided in the client's best interest. And this shift happened in FOFA. So, you know, we're talking 2013. Uh, which by my calculations is roughly nine years ago. But the focus of of the advice process is often, is everything in the file? Can we tick off, tick off, tick off, tick off, tick off? There's a lot of ticking off. I really like the way that you mentioned that the regulators look at the full file review. And, and you also mentioned that the regulators, the, the process of a file review is demonstration of understanding. Exactly the same way is your client demonstration of understanding that we covered in the, in the final, in the, sorry, in the last episode. Um, and so the regulators have taken this client centric. They've always said clear and concise, but, uh, you know, they've taken this client centric view as to did the client understand? Can we understand that the clients understood? Um, and that's where, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to client-centric and, and what you're talking about with recording meetings and, and being able to demonstrate that actually is better for the regulators. Yeah, absolutely. If the regulator is relying on a piece of paper that says, I explained this to the client and the client understood, but then the regulator suddenly is looking at a complaint that's come through a client or AFCA is looking at a complaint that's come from a client, they're going to turn around and go, did they really understand did they really agree to do it or is that just what you've written in your in your file and therefore the benefit of the doubt goes to the client which is the client didn't actually understand the client didn't actually consent uh, and you have used your 
power of influence and the fact that you understand a lot more to the client to convince them or sell to them that this is the right thing that they should do. Now, at the time, you know the client understood and you knew, you know that it was the best advice and the best outcome for the client. But as you lose that demonstration by not having a recording of it, um, you lose that power to go back and, and actually demonstrate to the regulator or demonstrate to AFCA that, that the client did understand. Yep. Now, one of the things I wanted to cover off with you quickly too is the the um, technology piece, because obviously, um, you know, client centric advice and 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 all these sort of things are, um, can be enhanced by the use of technology, as we mentioned before, efficiencies and effectiveness. But if you've already got a bad process and you just use it, you know, efficiencies to speed up that bad process, uh, that's an, or a non client centric process, and and you've used some technology to speed that up, you haven't actually enhanced the client experience at all. No, that's right. Uh, so five, six years ago, the FPA put out a report on using fintech in the advice process. And what we found is a lot of members went out and bought the shiniest piece of technology they could find. And it either created significant inefficiencies in their business or wasted a lot of time and money or didn't actually help the client understand the advice process in, in any way. Uh, so the important thing, if you are looking at using technology and are looking to advi provide advice in a way that uses technology to un enable understanding and consent from clients is to actually properly design out your advice process and properly design out your tech stack and, and properly integrate that. Because if you do that, then you'll save a lot of time and you'll save a lot of money and you will create efficiencies and you will create an engaging advice process for your clients. But if you just try and buy the shiniest new object that's out there, you'll waste a lot of time and money in doing it. Yeah, so a lot of this sort of starts with the mindset of how are we going to provide a client-centric or client-directive advice process, you know, something that's different or, or doesn't even have to be too different to maybe what you're doing already, but just in a way that's more, you know, client all around the client, all around those memorable moments that they can take away uh, and then introduce technology. It, it's, are we, do we have, like I think you sort of mentioned before, we sort of have a lot of the technology we need so far. It's not like we're waiting on anything from a technology point of view. No, I mean, when you think about collecting information from the client, you are recording it into your CRM. Uh, when you talk about developing strategies with a client, you're using modeling software. Um, when you're talking about recommending products, you're probably using comparison software and and those kind of tools to provide disclosure. When you talk about recording client meetings, you're already using Zoom or you're using Microsoft Teams. You've already got microphones and, and webcams and things like that. You are saving files somewhere. You can generally share those files with people if you need to, including clients. And so the pieces are kind of already there. It's just thinking about the output in a different way, thinking about it rather than producing paper. Think about it producing engaging files and an advice that's live and an advice that that tr helps the client track their progress and helps the client remember and helps the client understand um it, it's a better much better outcome for the advice process yep so this advice process you're talking about uh with regards to the so-called video statement advice but it's not really a video is it it's sort of just it's a recording of the conversation 
Yeah, so a statement of advice is me saying, Fraser, because you want to save for your retirement, I recommend you salary sacrifice $200 a fortnight into your superannuation fund. Um, and that should be in a balance fund because you want to access it in the next five to 10 years. That's my statement of advice. And the recording of that statement can be me documenting the statement that that I gave to you. Um, and it's a much better, much better format than, than, than paper. Because the next thing you turn around and say is, well, what's salary sacrifice? <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's the demonstration. And then of course, using screen sheets, um, share screens and those sorts of things, you can show the graphs and show the numbers and show the outcomes and show the inputs and show the comparator. Um, along the way but this is a this is a mindset shift isn't it this is a mindset shift of here is something we prepared earlier versus here is something we're preparing together yeah absolutely and i think one of the things we've for for those who are watching along later when they see the the video soa um release that the fpa puts out there are examples of you going through a number of different scenarios with between the planner and a client and the client saying Actually, I'll do this one because I don't trust myself to have that money in my bank account. I I trust it to to go into the super fund because I can't trust myself. What it allows you to do is demonstrate that you've built the advice with the client. But also if the client turns around and says, actually, I want to do something different that may not have been what you as a professional would have otherwise recommended to the client. Again, that's documented. If the client turns around and says, actually, I might want to have, so sorry, going back, if, if you recommend that the client salary sacrifices $500 a month into super and the client turns around and goes, well, actually, I don't want to give up access to that money. Um, I might only do $200 a month. And you go back and forth and you talk about the pros and cons, but the client ultimately says, no, I'll only do 200. I'm not going to do 500. That's documented. And you can document to the client and play back to the client if they make a complaint later or if somebody is reviewing the file and says, but 500 was definitely the right amount to achieve their goals and objectives, that the client actually directed you to do 200 or the client directed you to invest in something that you knew was a bad company or the client directed you invest in something that was way more risky than what their risk tolerance would otherwise suggest being able to document that in a video and have that as as the proof of the advice you provided is far more powerful than writing it into a writing it into a 150 page document and hoping somebody picks it up later yeah, exactly. And I think uh, when you do something in a, in, a, in a long form document and then you ask for a one decision at the end, and I guess the disclosure principles are all around the idea around, you know, we need to provide you with the, the, the correct amount of information to make an informed decision whether you want to proceed or not. And that's kind of the big decision at the end. But the, there was a the whole lot of micro decisions that take place along the way, like you just said, you know, being able to make some small changes here or there. Uh, and clients are sort of making decisions around what their goals are going to be, decisions around whether they know are happy with the strategy, decisions around, you know, product, you know, preferences or benefits and features in a particular product that suit them. There's heaps of micro decisions along the way. And if you're actually capturing all those micro decisions, that not just the big decision of yes, we want to proceed or no, we don't. 
That's right. And, you know, getting one signature at the end of a 100-page document is is not really demonstration that the client has considered all of all of the information that you've provided and and agreed to it. Um, but if you can play back to the client how they made the decisions and why they made the decisions, that's that's far more powerful for them to understand and for you as a defense if, if they turn around later and say they didn't understand. Yep, fantastic. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us on the series. Really appreciated uh, your time and, and insights. Uh, if somebody wants to continue the conversation with you, um, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? Thank you, Fraser. It's been phenomenal being part of this series as well, and I've enjoyed every minute of the conversation we've had. If people want to get in touch with me, they can find me. I'm at the Financial Planning Association, so you can find me in our community there, or you can find me in virtually all the emails that come out. Um, but otherwise, if you want to connect with me personally, uh, you'll often find me on LinkedIn sharing information about changes um, that are happening from government or regulators or or, or best practice around technology and, and best practice around advice provision and also a little bit of Lego because I love my Lego. <laughs> yeah, we do see a little bit of Legos. Thank you, Ben, so much. Uh, and if somebody wants to chat to you about or find out a bit more about the, the, the video SOA process, uh, is it just the FPA website, the place? Uh, at the moment, if you're listening to this uh, before sort of May, June um, and you're an FPA member, you'll be able to find more about the video SOA or SOAP box, as we've called it. Uh, in community, uh, but we'll be launching it out to the whole profession in May, June, um, so everybody can have a look. Ben. And that, that'll be part of the roadshow. That will be part of the FPA roadshow, that's right. Great. Thank you, Ben. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Fraser. Have a great day, everyone. Welcome back to this, the final episode uh, in our five-part series, and we are going deep into the conversations around designing an advice process that's extremely client-centric, starting with the client's hopes, dreams, goals, aspirations, all of their problems, and solving those problems uh, at the beginning, uh, versus setting up a process, um, you know, as a compliant process that, you know, some financial uh, advice clients will get something out of. Um Prashant, welcome back. And Michelle, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Um, Prashant, we, we've been uh, opening up a little bit about your business, um, about the concept that you run a membership and that the, you have a or six to 12 month process in place that um, you know helps clients get their financial uh, life in order, that hopes that sets them on a, on a journey towards their hopes, dreams, goals, and aspirations. But uh, you don't essentially try to solve the issue in the first month. You, you allow the process to take its place, which then brings clients along on the journey, allowing them to accept, uh, be a part of, co-create the information with there, you know, with you or with your business partner, um, and then you know, having that that lifelong journey in front of them, but um, you know, transitioning the turning the Titanic around, you know, quickly type thing versus uh, or they say ships ships turn slowly. Um, tell tell us a little bit more about this process and 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 how many months it goes over, and if we break it into sort of you know, what are the main areas of your process? I guess the main, the first, and the we think one of the most important ones is the the try before you buy element, which is uh, the starting stage, because a lot of the young younger market, when I say younger, I mean 30 to 40, 30 to 50 year old sort of bandwidth. Most of them have never spoken to a financial advisor. Uh, our feedback surveys and stuff that they don't know what a financial advisor does. Most people think the accountant is their financial advisor. You know, there's there's all of that. So there, there is an element of I need help, but I don't know what you do. 
element, you know. Uh, I think I know what you do, but I don't know exactly kind of thing. So you, you find that. So the trial meeting basically sets that out. So we have a three-week three trial process. So first one's just getting them to ease off and, you know, ease a bit and get comfortable. So it's all about them, the spotlights on them. Second meeting is all about spotlights on their wallet, you know, their money and everything like that. And the third one's basically the diagnosis element to sort of, you know, with pictures and colors and saying what's good and what's bad, you know, to sort of things that they can't not say no to. So, for, you know, to, to show that tangibly. And then, so once we know what their problem is and we know what they're good at and bad at, then we sort of say, okay, they usually come with one, we call it chief complaint. They come with one specific thing. And then around that, there's a satellite of other little things that needs to be fixed. But to them, it's that main thing. So I come in with a headache. What we find is when they come in with a headache, don't then don't touch their you know don't look at their hand or the leg just talk about the headache you know the problems in the hip but don't go straight there yet you know so it's almost like so there's always one primary objective so we make sure our 12 month delivery is centered around that one thing and then all the other nice to haves are sorted in that journey uh, it's almost like um, we make sure the nice to haves are laid out in a way that it solves the primary objective so so the the 12 months then get split out in that third meeting. We say, first month, we're going to do this. First two months is financial modeling. Second month is, say, tracking your, uh, you know, setting the targets, uh, you know, and then, then we say investments or if there's, a, if there's a lending solution and stuff like that that needs to be done, we sort of lay it out from, um, you know, it's a series of uh, design, build, uh, you know, design and build, design and build at each stage. So um, the 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 blueprint is done and then we say in the sixth month we're going to design and build your super bit whilst we're doing that in the sixth and seventh month we will design and build your insurance bit because it's quite correlated hey you know what whilst we're touching your super thing we don't just say we're going to touch sort out your super we'll say we'll sort out your investments because that's what excites the younger market you know what i mean so they know they need to get on top of it so it's almost like when we educate the process it's like by the way this is how the world of investment works yada 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 hey, your super does exactly what I just said, you know? So why don't we just finish it all in one hit between the seven to eight month? We'll design all the three and build all the three because it's heavily correlated. We'll come to that later, you know? But now this is your pain point. Your pain point is not having that $500 a month to put into that thing that we just spoke about, <laughs> you know? Let's solve that in the first three months. Let's find that money rather than building it first, you know? So that's where we sort of space it out. Um, and use behavioral validations before we actually insert the product into, into And Prashant, I love in your approach how it's a real, you listen to the customer and it's from that listening place that you then develop a very focused and intentional approach. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I love the fact that you are triaging, you, you know, like you, we talked about the medical uh, industries previously. When people come in, as you said, they've got a headache or you triage uh, what the exact uh, wounds are that need to be uh, treated first. Um, but then I also, from the business world, and you can sort of comment on this, Michelle, you know, you're almost like an agile type of business where you, you know, to create a series of sprints that you're, you know, those design and build, design and build. And, um, but, but understanding that we're going to tackle that down the track, you know, we've recognized that down the track, but, but just right now we're only focusing on this one thing. We're going to design and build this one sprint. 
Absolutely. And it's that listening to the customer, you know, prototyping with them, the co-design process to involve them in the, you know, in the solution development. And it's an iterative process. You continue to design and build and get feedback and, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and bringing the client along with the journey also allows them to take uh, ownership, I guess. Uh, Rajan, you would see this. They take ownership of their own behaviours. 100%, 100%. We find that uh, um, that's uh, that ownership is quite high and it's just the way that it's, you know, going back to that informed consent and making sure they understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and showing them things in tangible fashions over the journey, you know, and it's, I think that that all results in that, you know, the end picture. Yeah, exactly. And you're, you're obviously coaching them along the way. Now, taking ownership in their own behaviours, I think, is a, is a huge, uh, you know, a, a very rewarding p- part of the process. Um, but does that mean that they then take less or put less, um, you know, effect that things have happened to them when markets downturn or those sorts of things? They're sort of not blaming you as their investment person. Um, for all of their woes, they're sort of taking responsibility, and and then and when markets do come down, you, they see it as opportunity. Hundred percent, definitely. I think the more we, you know, the more yeah, so the more we focus on that that education piece. I think they always understand that things are going to be volatile if we've done the education bit right. I think we we all know that, but I think the focus trying to sort of say that. The market can do five thousand dollars over five, you know, two years for you, or you can save that tomorrow. You know what I mean? There's more alpha that you can do with the money you're you're handling right now, not all the stuff around you. So sort of bringing it back to them and making their choice architecture right, if I was to use that word, and 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 rather than you know um, using a platform as the be all and end all for their you know their journey, you know. Yeah. Now, Prashant, you obviously had the um, the benefit of creating this business with your business partner, uh, you know, working out what the process was going to be and then creating this process and then introducing new clients along the way, which which is completely admirable, you know, to start up. But it's obviously not an easy process starting up a, a financial advice business, especially when the cost to, uh, costs are very high to run one. Um, but Michelle, you, you would also see this from the point of view of um, you know existing businesses, traditional businesses that are set in their ways and having to then bring and make changes to be really client centric and, and create an advice process. How are you seeing you know advice practices change their 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 advice process or change their ways or even you know teach existing clients our new process? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it I see driven by, you know, market forces. I mean, for all the advisors I speak to, the number one complaint I hear is the cost of delivering advice. And, you know, wrapped up in that is the burden of compliance and education requirements and, you know, manual processes, all that kind of stuff. But so that is what is driving people to change their processes and their approach. And with that, there are opportunities there in technology to streamline processes, to um, put clients in the driver's seat more and empower them, improve the education, improve their experience, you know, all these things that help improve the quality of advice that's delivered and the value that's perceived by customers. But it's those driving forces in the market that's putting a lot of pressure on people to explore new ways and new opportunities. And some people are doing that really well and thriving in it, but there's a lot of pressure there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of it, as you mentioned, then is in the attitude of the advisor moving forward, whether they want, you know, whether they're waiting for market forces to force them or whether they want to be proactive. Yeah, absolutely. And so some of it is just taking hold of, you know, scanning the environment to say what opportunities out there that can help me in this challenge. Yeah, change creates opportunity. Yeah. 
Yeah, and one of the things, uh, Prashant, I see, you know, coming out is that if you're putting clients first and you're helping them understand from a compliance point of view, them um, them knowing where they're heading, them understanding, them getting that clarity, and you know that that heads off a lot of compliance issues, I guess, in the in the future, whether. You know, because a lot of the compliance is around making sure people understand people do things. But if you're leading with compliance, it's a fairly, uh, you know, not exciting process or not engaging process. But if you're leading with the clients, um, then you can actually cover off on the on the compliance side as well. And I think really early on, you have to give them a sense that you are really going to be able to put them in a better position in the future with your advice and you know, being able to demonstrate, give an indication of, of your skills and ability in that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the client centricity is, you know, um, and I understand a lot of um, advisors, um, you know, have challenges adapting to what what's going on right now and and what has been in the last decade. Um, I think uh, I think a lot of things um, like Daniel's really helped me with this in in terms of frame of thinking is you know that first principle you know the first principle thinking you know we can, we can sit there we 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 both decided we can sit there and go compliance is a is stopping me from doing what we want yes it's clunky I agree it's clunky and 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 but then we started saying effectively it's what we said it's 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 a checkpoint for us to make sure we. You know what we we do, what we say we do, the way we do, and how we do it, and within the time we do it. You know that's effectively what this whole thing is. And I don't know if I've said it out right in that, but you get the point. You know. So and then we when we designed everything around that, it naturally started integrating with client experience and everything like that. And rather than seeing it, yes, there's parts of it that can be shorter, but it's can't. But it's um, you know trying to see a half glass full. Uh, with everything we've we've thrown at. And I think, you know, the spirit of the compliance is on the money in my perspective, you know, to be able to leave the client, the duty to leave a client in a better position and acting in hmm. their best best interest. But what the industry is really struggling with is working out what's the outworking of that in an efficient and effective way. And a lot of the outworkings look really burdensome and expensive and, you know, difficult to operate in and quite bureaucratic. But, you know, if we can take hold of the spirit of that, but find, you know, more effective ways to to administer that, I think is the key. Yes. And Michelle, just on that, are you seeing um, any particular things in that field when you speak to advisors around the country? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, looking at strategy modelling, a lot of it comes back to, you know, just simple things around just putting the strategy first, letting that drive the path forward, looking at product later, using numbers to quantify and show clients that they are in a better position after they take on board your advice. You know, all of those things that demonstrate that you are acting in their best interest and using numbers to back it up, the before, the after, all of those things. But it comes down to having solutions where you can do that quickly, easily and effectively and it's not more effort for you to do that. Yep, Prashant. Yeah, I think Michelle's point is absolutely right. I think that that whole, you know, letting the strategy drive the whole, um, you know, the decision trees around everything you do for your your client, but uh, but then you know in the in the in the, the client centricity side of it and in that efficiency in the pursuit of efficiency, what I find is what we've always found is someone's usually solved your problem. It's just about finding that person and getting the answer. And, and I think communities like XY Advisor and you know all these communities, they do a very good job at connecting people. And it's just, 
Uh, and quite often I'm finding that there's cross-pollination across industries as well. Like, you know, there's doctors have done this much better than we can. And sometimes car manufacturers do a greater job at doing, creating, you know, that conveyor belt kind of a, a thing than anyone else. So I think someone's always solved it. It's just about us finding, I guess, the capacity to look for it. And quite often we find that we do too many things as most advisors I find are, either some like business owners and advisors, there's a couple of cap in a hat set they wear and everyone's under the pump with capacity. And I think the lack of capacity is taking the eye off the client centricity a little bit, just because, you know, um, we become more compliance centric than client centric as a result of everything. Um, so, but I think uh, finding capacity um, was the first thing that was that we found allowed us to look at other places. So we started getting as much as help as possible from everyone, you know, uh, we can we can ask for. And a lot of the struggle I see from advisors is they're so busy with their clients in the churn of the business that it's really hard to step outside of the business and to be working on the business, just carving out that time to, you know, to look at the things that would bring improvements to efficiency and save time later. It's, it is a real struggle as a, you know, as a business owner. Yeah, and it's not just the it's not the only struggle as a business owner. Sometimes the business owner struggles to see things from the client's point of view as well. You know, because if they have come up through a um, you know a very compliant regime or whatever it might be, it's very much around the idea of building this from a business point of view, not from the client's point of view. Um, what are your tips around that, Michelle, for to for advisors to then you know see things from the client point of view? Yeah, in the process improvement world, it's all voice of the customer. You know, everything should be seen from the voice of the customer. Forget what the back-end processes look like. Look at it from the customer's perspective first of what they see, what they touch, what they feel, where those interactions are, what they value, and work from that first and then look at the bits behind the scene that they don't see. Yeah, this is. I heard a really interesting comment a couple of years ago that if, if, if you have a really bad process and you just create some efficiencies and make it faster for the client to get a really bad process, you're actually just making – you're turning them off quicker. Yeah. <laughs> And Prashant, uh, from a practical point of view, how have you gone about uh, working out is this the actual, is this a customer or a client-centric process we're putting in place or is this just something that, you know, um, that we think from a business point of view is better or? Mm, yeah. I think um, just to uh, go back, we we typically now found out there's only four key chief complaints that our customers walk in with. It was just very, it doesn't matter what you, where they come from, how they come from, they all come in with one of the four problems. They either are a first-time buyer or they're next-home buyer, okay? Or they are a first-time investor or they're a financial optimizer, you know? That, that's basically four types of category that they come from. And, and how we found out is through that, you know, putting the client thing, you know, we've started logging some patterns or noticing patterns and we find that there was this bell curve of 80% of them, you know, had pretty much the same things. And it, now then it was about, you know, uh, trying to sort of find which one's more important and where do we spend more time because it's important to you as a process, you know, and then, and how do we, you know, spend more time on this thing uh, and, and less time on the other one and tr try to build that process that way. 
this helped us with business efficiency because we'd say the process now starts becoming standardized because it's a it's because you know it's a bell curve kind of thing and this is where there's a lot you know a lot of people talk about niching and and things like that it's not just on the top line revenue i think it helps with your business efficiency when you work with a niche because you 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 you're very good at solving a particular style of problem so that's what we found um, helps and I think the other key to improving is feedback from customers, you know, and it's more mm. than just a ticker box survey and a ratings thing. It's actually having some of the deep and meaningful conversations with customers of, you know, what were their high points along, you know, along the journey and what were their low points and how do they think you can improve? And the more feedback, the more regular feedback that you can have from customers, the more you have opportunity to improve. And I think that customer journey mapping and talking to mm. your customer is worth its weight in gold. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most priceless things we've done was to get one of our team members to call, reach out to every single client we've had and call them and ask to talk to them for about 15 minutes to 30 minutes. You know, so your customers don't give you feedback in front of your face. The feedback that they give you on a survey monkey is very different. And the most ineffective, sorry, the most inexpensive way is when we got Matt, uh, like a marketing coordinator uh, uh, within our team to call and he basically plots everything from what they said and how, what they felt and everything around it. And I think everyone here can pretty much try, try it, you know, next week. It's inexpensive. If you, if you're a single operator and you have a partner, get your partner to maybe just reach out to a couple of these clients and ask these questions. And I think it's, it's, uh, there'll be a lot of gold nuggets of process improvements. You probably, you know, and wastage, you can cut off your process. Yeah, exactly right. I think uh, we, mm. we did touch on each, we'll probably come back to that, but um, mm. that client feedback is a, is an important mm. measure. And also I think the idea that you mentioned there, that it, um, uh, Michelle was getting specific on the, the feedback, you know, like uh, Prashant, you're, you're probably lucky because you're doing, um, you know, piecemeal type of, you know, today we're doing this and then you can get some quick feedback on that one thing um, versus just an overall how satisfied were you, you know, type type mm-hmm. conversation, which doesn't actually give you any help in improving and appro- improving a process. Um, Michelle, what, what were your thoughts on that specific feedback type, um, getting really specific with your feedback? Super important. I mean, it's the key to improvement. Yeah. Mm. It's just people struggle with getting finding the time to do it and integrating that into their process, and but super important. And how can people then find the time or make the time to, to, to incorporate that? I think it takes a bit of planning. I think you have to be really conscious and intentional about setting aside time and whether that's something that you do uh, regular on a weekly or monthly basis or a quarterly review, but you, you need to carve it out in your diary. It's really what helps you improve and move forward. Yep. Now, I wanted to talk to you also about the the niching conversation. You know, who, who do you best serve? And Prashant, you obviously you know went through and worked out who you wanted to serve as a, as a, as a business. But you know, Michelle, say from a business point of view, how important is is niching in your client base? Really important to know who your client is and what's their pain point. What are they willing to pay money for? And I think the better you can understand your client and their needs and align your services to what they want is key. So I think, you know, Prashant's done a really good job of that in his business. You know, he he understands his customer really well and um, it means he can align his service well to it. Yeah, and I also feel like it, uh, Prashant, it allows the clients to self-select too if whether you know with the, with the with the marketing you put out and those sorts of things, 
for them to self-select and go, well, you sound like, you know, you look after me. I'm the, I'm that type of person. Um, nobody else says that. Everybody else just sort of says what they do from, you know, or they do investment or insurance. Um, but for you to be able to turn around and say, we help these types of people with these types of problems. Yes, that's right. It's, it, it helps. It makes it so much easier for, for, for us to sort of go, you know, sort of defining ourselves as, as an, as a, as a business owner, it makes you won't you won't believe how easy it makes for your clients to refer to, you know, because you know it's it makes it easier for the whole supply chain to know what they're doing and what they're good at. Um, it, it 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 has a lot of unintended plus points apart from revenue and business efficiency. It 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 actually helps with the identity and the culture of the business as well. So, Prashant, do you find that that means your customers know what other sort of customers to refer to you? That's that's correct. Exactly. So every time they send some, you know, we get referrals, it's exactly that niche. You know, it's not, it doesn't fall off the, the two ends of the bell curve. It's exactly that because they know, you know, what you do and what you don't do, you know. Yeah, I also feel this is not just about your existing clients referring you know, clients to you, but this is also a really good uh, conversation um, around referral networks. And if you've got um, other professionals that refer you, they know exactly what you do and who you look, who you serve. Hundred percent. We've actually got a lot of financial advisors referring, you know, and I could see that network actually growing. Actually, and we do vice versa as well. So if someone walks in with an SMSF-related uh, question or anything like that, we we point them to the right specialist that we know. It just I think we're moving away from I want everyone to that that doctor sort of a thing where this is not my skill set. There's this person who's going to do a good job. I'm going to refer you there. That that culture is definitely um, coming, and I think it will. Niching was going to help with that. Talking to our advisors, I've heard a lot in terms of referral networks that the, um, accountants tend to be their number one best referral partner. And why, why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, we've actually got some clients who are accountants as well. And it's interesting, you know, they've said, you know, they've got a client who, you know, wants to buy a house or improve their financial position or do a number of things. And the accountants often really struggle with a trusted um, financial advisor who can answer a lot of their scenario, what if questions and things like that. So when they do find an advisor who they trust and will do a good job with their client, that goes down really well. And also the client has already built up a lot of trust with the accountant in the first place. So you're kind of trading off that pre-established trust if you then referred on to a, a financial advisor. Yeah, it's, it's, as you say that, it makes me think of the demonstration of understanding conversation that we had. And obviously your demonstration of understanding to the client is one thing, but but uh, having that second conversation around demonstration of understanding for the referral partner or the or, or whoever's mm-hmm. you know the accountant or whoever it may have been to say look this is this is the position that they were going to be heading in and this is the position that they're now heading in based on our advice and based on your referral to us has allowed this person to be ex better off or as we mentioned before um, can avoid losing this much. Yeah, and to connecting to the you know the doctor analogy you've used, Prashant, it's a bit like you know referring someone on to a specialist that you know I can see they've got this particular need which is outside of my expertise. Let me f- refer you on to a neurologist. Hmm. Yeah, and in that scenario, the, uh, the 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 neurologist always sends a report back to the doctor, don't they? That uh, <laughs> yeah. this, is, this was the outcome. Yeah, yeah. And then it's only if the doctor then gets good reports from that neurologist that they will then keep referring other clients. 
Yep, absolutely. All part of the process. Uh, Michelle and Prashant, thank you so much for joining us on this series. I really, uh, really appreciate your insights, um, Prashant, and getting to know your business a little bit better. Uh, and Michelle, understanding, um, you know, your, well, your history of uh, helping businesses out. Um, Prashant, if somebody wants to continue this conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? My emails, um, or yeah, my email or website. Um, so my email is Prashant. P-R-A-S-H-A-N-T at finical.com.au or you can visit our website finical.com.au and reach out to me from there. Fantastic. And Michelle, uh, people want to continue the conversation with you. What's the best way for them to reach out? So you can check out our website at optimofinancial.com.au or you could find me on LinkedIn, Michelle Bannister. Wonderful. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Fraser. Thanks, Fraser. And here we have it. We are at the final episode of our five-part series. I'm joined again by Jeff. Thank you for joining me. Oh, pleasure. Uh, great to be on your show, Fraser. Uh, now, we are chatting about the client-centric model, about obviously you, we've we've got to know your business fairly well over the last four episodes, and uh, obviously it's very uh, client-centric. Um, however, I guess the profession has always been be- beaten by the compliance stick in a certain way, um, and a lot of our processes that are uh, inserted into the process just keep getting chucked in there from the compliance point of view with no real consideration to you know the, how the clients feel about it or where you, where you get it in the process. How have you gone over the years with all the different, you know, we're going to need to add this for compliance and add that for compliance. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of, you just have to, <laughs> like all advisors, you've just got to roll with the punches a little bit. And yep. and I, I do agree with you. It's sort of just thrown in there and, you know, this is what it is. And so what I've tried to do is integrate it so that it actually becomes quite a natural process. So, for example, um, just recently I've... It has been there in different forms. The last meeting I really is a is a meeting where I would explore different options with the client. So this is the one of the ethical standards about uh, exploring their best interest or <laughs> one of those. But you know, so I actually say, well, this is option one. This is what you're currently in, and it looks like this. These are the other options, and so I'm helping them see the differences and understand. Uh, why they might choose one over the other, and so this, so that's so that's one way, and that that I find it's actually a really good process, and it's all visual, and I'm not mentioning products, I'm just talking about how they might be different uh, after analysing the current one. So that's certainly <coughs> will help me tick tick that box. So and then the review process is I make sure that I use visual tools to. Uh, to to make sure they're happy where they're at and uh, get value for money as part of my process and and I work I actually taken that as part of the ongoing um, advice process or it could be I call it ongoing guidance because I'm the guide so and I sort of have different levels of what I do depending on their um, agreement they have in place so and so that's so that's helped me flesh that out, that compliance yeah. overlay there. Do you, so just quickly, do you do 12-month service agreements or you do ongoing? Ongoing. Ongoing, yep. And so then every year you're then talking about your ongoing guidance and what you're offered and what you went through, you know, a recap and then what you're looking at doing in the next 12 months? Yep, but yeah, but also it's a bit also on the – that there's also a standard, then there's different levels of they might – they're at this stage, they might choose to now take this service on. Yeah. So sort of trying to break not just a, uh, you know, 1% is 
the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do that anyway. But just for example, yeah, yeah. Now your advice has sort of evolved from obviously, as you mentioned earlier, your estate planning, and then you've evolved into um, producing advice. Did you get to sit down and, and design this process from start to finish, or is it just something that you kept trying to make? You know, our <laughs> clients need this or want this, or and so you've just sort of molded it over time. Yeah, no, I am a little bit attracted to the shiny objects, <laughs> so it has evolved over time. And the, but I, I, sort of, it's quite interesting because starting with estate planning and accounting, I, I did a lot of work with a, a really good lawyer, and he we had the same issue. So you could do an estate plan, for example, for a client. I did have one client, so that's fantastic. I said I just want to hang around and see how it all pans out. So obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then you have the other situation where a client has an estate plan, but they can't decide what they're going to do next. So that might be a succession plan for a farming client or business owner. So, so it's always looking for how do I fill that gap for them? So, so that led to doing transition planning and helping people plan the next phase of their life and Sort of by doing that, then I found other things to incorporate into my process. So it, it's it's just by looking out what's next, then how do I incorporate that into what I'm doing? It's ever evolving. It's one thing we didn't quite um, mention in the previous episodes, but that transition planning is a, is is your your leeway into financial planning, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. So that's that's about preparing for what's next, and and so. How do, how do, it's not so a good, a good example there is traditional financial planning you retire at 65 so up until that point you've your life's been with work and family and the next day you've got nothing so that that so that's that's a uh, my dad actually was in that situation he had a business and he sold it he'd worked seven days a week for umpteen years and the next day he had absolutely nothing to do nothing so <laughs> So transition planning is preparing for that next step. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? They, my uh, my dad did the same thing, went from full-time work to selling it to retiring to realising that uh, he, he tried to convince me that retirement was a full-time job. There was no days off. He had to do it every day. So, um, <laughs> But he, I think he plays golf most days. But um, but it's certainly, you know, you're exactly right, having the continuation where things don't seem to be huge leaps and bounds or steps or, or, or the people around you know what's going on as well, more so you know, than just you knowing, like it's not you, your clients aren't just the clients, they're the families as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's, uh, and it is true, quite often the it's obviously changing now with um, both partners working full time, but traditionally the the better half, the your wife, would already have a good life. You know, she's got a full network of friends and uh, lots of activities, whereas the husband has limited. Very, it gets smaller and smaller as you get older. Yeah, and do you find that with your client-centric approach that you're bringing the next generation through as well, or is that something that you've you've struggled with? Yeah, so um, I do I do offer that service because um, that's an easy one from an estate planning point of view. Is when they have young children, is when I'm doing that projection out the the unknown unknowns. What happened if your son <clears throat> had an accident or was un unwell who would you be paying their mortgage you know who, who's going to help them out and that that's how i bridge that gap yep uh and you as you mentioned earlier you're using technology even though a lot of your clients were rural 
let's go with farming clients um, or people that are working the land in some way. Um, and how have they gone with the, the the concept of using Zoom? Because I'm traditionally, you know, shaking hands was a very big part of that. Yeah. So yeah. So I just just had a um, a virtual meeting with a, a client, you know, hundred kilometres out of Esperance, and you know, husband and wife both sitting in the room with a big laptop in front of them and tuning right in and looking at the screen and chatting quite freely. So that it, it's actually they really enjoy it. It would save them two hours of travelling if I went to Esperance and they had to meet me in the city, in the town somewhere. So it's very efficient. They can log in at night time, you know, after a day's work. It's been good. On the other hand, it still is nice to actually um, see them in person. So I've also had a a trip out there recently, uh, whereas (laughs) I'd like to do mix and match. Yeah, every now and then you you, uh, you meet in person, shake yeah. hands, and look people in the eye. That's uh, it's 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 a very big trust building thing for a lot of clients. Um, but I think also if you show up online, you know, five or six times when you said you were going to show up, and you, you're there and you're helping them constantly over and over, that that they tend to to grow trust as well from that. Yes, yes, that's right, and especially when you lead, uh, you have a lot of meetings, um, a lot of little meetings, uh, and you might be bringing in other experts and. It's, it's much more efficient that I, yeah, I can yeah. coordinate it from my office here in Scarborough. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. If you, can bring a, if you can bring a lawyer in from somewhere else and the, and the client in from somewhere else in uh, online meetings is definitely a, uh, an attribute to your business. Uh, wonderful. Uh, tell us about any referral networks that you've, you've built on and how um, you present to them what the clients, you know, the, the outcomes for clients and, and, and what you're doing for clients and building their, building their uh, client story uh, and, how that, um, and how that helps you with your referral networks. Yeah, so uh, um, I used to get quite a few referrals from accountants, but I've, I, I have felt that that's gone quite lately because they tend, they have been doing more of their in-house uh, type advice. I still, every now and then, I'll get a client, uh, an accountant call me up and, and they'll have an estate planning uh, group of clients that they might want, want me to see. So I'd have to say I'm not super strong on the having this referral network, but I, I do like to, one thing I do enjoy, uh, I actually are uh, part of Rotary. So I actually quite, quite uh, and have a couple of clients via there, but I find that enjoyable that we can, I can meet them on a not a purely referral type basis. So they might say, oh, yeah. I'd, can you help me with this? Or what is this like? It might be a referral for their brother or mum or something like that. That's probably what I enjoy doing. Yep. Now, uh, you mentioned before that, um, you know, the, it's not the pure analytical type um uh, advice you're giving, uh, you you are dig, digging deep and and understanding the the clients or the human emotion side of advice and the and the benefit that that brings. Um, and when we talk about the value of advice, often the value can be monetary value, but also um, you know emotional value as well. What tips would you give to other advisors and planners that were not doing a lot of that in their business? They were they were just focusing on the numbers. I think a really good starting point is estate planning. Uh, I've mentioned that several times. So I think it's an easy one to start with. Uh, You know, there's lots of good training providers. Um, I can certainly help them, (laughs) refer them to a few. So, And and it's a great skill to have to be able to connect with the human side of the client. So that would be my... 
and it's actually really good. It gets gets you up and running, and you can have a few uh, wins there because you can see a few gaps and go from there. The second one is I'd, I'd explore some, um, do some reading, uh, and then explore some uh, other software providers out there who actually help you with that side of side advice. But yeah, you have to have an interest, and you have to do some reading and research, and take it from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Jeff, so much for being a part of the series. It's been uh, absolutely uh, amazing to get to know some of the intricacies within your business. I uh, really appreciate you uh, giving uh, so much to us all. Um, Jeff, how, if people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to find you or get hold of you? Yeah, so I've got a, I've got a no regrets checklist on my website and that, that's a really nice little, I think it's a good way to, to actually give you a nice broad scope of the uh, all the head and heart issues that you should be discussing so that's at www.reallifefinancialplanning.com.au forward slash no regrets checklist so you can go straight to the website but also if you want to have a chat you can book a zoom meeting Uh, there's a link on the website wonderful thank you so much uh we look forward to i look forward to following the journey actually so uh, i hope people will reach out and um, find get hold of that no regrets checklist i think it'll be a great it's a great one for clients obviously yeah thank you it's been a lot of fun fraser thoroughly enjoyed it